and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me this fine evening, as always, Nicole Davis. How are you? Uh, I'm very cross from fighting with my washing machine, but (laughs) over and done with, and I I finally got my clothes dry, and so that's all done. Yes, so I'm ready to talk about this movie. I'm glad you emerged victorious in that battle of man versus machine. (laughs) Uh, David, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm going to follow a similar journey to the main character of this movie. I'm not going to speak for approximately the first uh, 20 minutes of this podcast. (laughs) Then I will speak sparsely only when spoken to for the next 20 minutes. And then for the last 20 minutes, I will just monologue. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I'm so glad that at least one of us is going to be doing that. So I don't have to. Uh, Wonderful. (laughs) Well, we watched the Nuda 2, which was actually my opportunity to pick a film that neither of you two had seen before. Uh, This comes around every five weeks. It's the beginning of the cycle. And that means next week is the second week in the brand new cycle. It is a Netflix roulette week. We spin the wheel and the Netflix gods choose what we watch. And we will be watching the late 90s Kevin Smith film, Chasing Amy. So be sure to check that out on Netflix if you'd like to follow along with us. But now we are going to talk about Paris, Texas. I'm so excited about this one. Uh, this was my pick. A plot focuses, uh, the plot focuses on a vagabond named Travis who, after mysteriously wandering out of the desert in a dis- disassociative fugue, is reunited with his brother and seven year old son. After reconnecting with his son, Travis and the boy end up embarking on a voyage through the American Southwest to track down Travis's long missing wife. Um, we typically explain why we picked something. So, Briefly, because I know we have a ton of discussion topics, Uh, I had seen this movie earlier this year for the first time, and I think it might now be one of my all-time favorite movies. I just love everything about it. I love its its, uh, sparse but emotional depiction of, like, Americana throughout the Southwest and throughout Texas. I, I really love the acting and the story. I, I love the music. Uh, you know, Ry Cooter, the a guitarist, did the score, which we'll talk about later. And this movie just spoke to me in a way that a lot of movies haven't. Uh, it was just really poignant to me in many ways. And, and we'll get into those as we dive into our mountain of discussion topics now Uh, before we get too far brett i have you said earlier this year uh we're releasing fairly early to or fairly close to our recording times do you mean sometime in 2019 or did you literally see this movie within the last like three weeks and bring it to us oh my gosh (laughs) in in the last year as in like within the last 12 months um yeah no i saw this i saw this a little while back and because i was in 2019 in 2019. Okay. All um, right. That's what I was curious about. <laughs> yeah. Actually discovered it through my love of Ry Cooter because I was, I was listening to the soundtrack and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Where does this come from? And that's when what? I found it. All right. It. Wait. 
what soundtrack there is barely <laughs> any music in this movie there's just enough I, nicole there, uh, there's enough it's it's it, it's rye cooter noodling on, an, on a guitar and there is a full soundtrack and i've listened to it frequently i love it it's like my work music and how eventually, long is the soundtrack yeah i was about to look that up actually i can tell you total it's great though um there's like there's like nine or ten songs on it because like i bought I, I bought the soundtrack. I watched Atlantics within the last couple of weeks, and I was fortunate enough to be able mm-hmm. to watch that on the big screen, not just on Netflix. Highly recommend, by the way. Um, and the music is much more present in that movie than it is mm-hmm. here, but the soundtrack is only about 35 minutes long. So this soundtrack so- is... 10 songs long which i think you're gonna say 10 about, minutes, I 10 minutes. Say 10. <laughs> uh which tracks with about it's 147 minutes long it is not a short listen <laughs> um what? and it's a, i can get I'm this on vinyl surprised. oh my god i want this on vinyl but yeah oh, long story short i that's like the length of the movie i it's i think it's longer <laughs> yeah um, i was gonna say there must be deleted tracks deleted noodling uh yeah, yeah. So anyway, the, I, the movie's like two hours and 25 minutes long it's, it's very long right so so I, I anyway i came back then to the movie again in the last couple of weeks because i subscribed to the criterion channel and i saw it was on there and i wanted to watch it again and see uh the bonus features that they added and that sort of thing and it was a pretty comprehensive background from criterion which sometimes there is sometimes there isn't on the channel so that was cool to see uh so i wanted to bring it to you guys because i knew it would be something that you may or may not like it is long it is a little boring and it definitely is something that some critics love some hate but it is kind of universally regarded amongst many as one of these like iconic road movies is what they call them so i wanted to talk about it because it's something totally different than anything we've seen here on the show before so Let's go through some of our discussion topics. And I think what Nicole put here, a quote from, I, there's two quotes Nicole put here. And I think they're great jumping points. I put points. in two contrasting, two contrasting excerpts from different reviews for this movie. Right. And I think they're indicative of the two different directions we can go with this conversation. So we'll start with those. Uh, Roger Ebert really loved this movie. He said, quote, the movie lacks any of the gimmicks used to pump up emotion and add story interest because it doesn't need them. It's fascinated by the sadness of its own truth. Um, And then conversely, there was a quote from Richard Brody in The New Yorker that says, Paris, Texas is a series of repressed moods and tones in which, uh, is it... Vendors, would you pronounce the W as a V, Nicole? <laughs> yes, he's a German director, so yeah. it's Vim Vendors. Vim Vendors, okay, filters his mythologized America back into American characters and places, resulting in a cinematic echo chamber that also echoes Hollywood's cliches, uh, sentimentality, and offers no contrasting practical complexity. So Richard and Roger, on uh, opposite spectrums here, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Do, did you guys feel the pumped up emotion that Ebert talks about, or did you feel it was an echo chamber of cliches that Brody talks about? I'm I'm afraid I fall on the echo chamber side. Yeah, I figured you would. It was pretty, and I felt like it thought it was showing a lot of depth, but I really... Other than, you know, because Harry Dean Stanton is such a fantastic actor, I actually did 
feel something for his character, yes. even though his character was not terribly expressive or and didn't have a whole lot of dialogue for large stretches mm -hmm. of the movie. Um, but I felt like, you know, Harry Dean Stanton's character was very superficial. I felt like the kid was pretty decent, but didn't have a lot to do. I, I did like the character of Jane, who is his, his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, um, played by a French actress. And no, I you mean, you mean Anne. Anne, sorry. Yes, Anne, um, who plays the, the wife of Dean, Dean Stockwell's character's wife, mm, yes. Aurora Clement, um, is her name. And I thought she was very good. And I actually felt some empathy from her. I got some characterization from her. And then there's the character of Jane, who's uh, Travis's wife, who we meet at the near the end of the movie and we know nothing about her yeah. so i didn't feel any real empathy for her and you know so there's like two characters that i care about but they don't really have a lot of direct relationship to one another and not a whole lot goes on in this movie, I don't feel like there's a lot of character arc to anybody except for Travis. Um, and even that's not a big arc. He's still a man who's emotionally detached and in pain for the most part at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I'm a, I, I fall on it. I felt like... Dean Stockwell's performance was very superficial and it's a performance that he's given before in other movies that weren't yeah. trying so hard yeah, to I, be something profound. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot to say about the character of Walt, um, but I won't for the moment. Uh, <laughs> I thought this one, this movie was a character study of Travis. It was interesting. It was engaging. I liked kind of unraveling who he was but then it kind of became the story about fatherhood, but never connected with that theme. And the movie kind of ended up at the end being about like, well, it's about what's, you know, it's, it's about this kid and what's best for this kid, which wasn't what the movie was about. I mean, just, just to jump to the end of the movie, we watch, Travis Harry Dean Stanton watch his son and ex-wife I guess reunite and then walk away but we watch him do that from a distance the emotional resolve of the movie is this connection one between a character that the movie kind of the, the son Hunter the movie either like focuses on or forgets about and then Jane, who, as Nicole says, isn't really much of a character until the last 15 minutes. And that's not enough to build her up. But the movie resolves with their reunion while from a distance we watch Travis leave. And it's like, no, no, no. Travis is the one that I've been following since the beginning. Mm, right. I, I don't feel like I'm leaving with him with the way that it's shot. I feel like I'm watching right. him go and it's like, no, 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 but I'm not with them. I'm with him. Interesting. Yeah. I, the, the end of this movie to me is very, very Western-y in the sense that, 
you know, he is on this journey of attempted self-redemption throughout the movie. Uh, and whether or not he succeeds, he doesn't feel that he can be part of that reunion. Which, uh, which, so he has to kind of literally yes. disappear into the sunset. Yes, which I'm totally fine with. But again, they do it from a distance. Mm-hmm. Like if that is like if we are if we if we watch the reunion with him from the parking lot at a distance from his point of view, that would have connected so much more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that would have had a much stronger emotional impact. I mean, you don't have to like watch him driving away with a lone tear trailing down his <laughs> right. face. It's, a, it's enough to watch him watching watch them. Yes. the reunion. Because, yeah, I mean, the whole movie, we are we're asked to identify with Travis and be with him and be on his journey mm-hmm. and to be suddenly thrown into his kid's journey. I, I don't think it's a, a, a wise move. Interesting. Okay, you know, I can understand that. I I think also one of the things I like about how this movie starts to zigzag through the Southwest, uh, because eh, li- eh, no, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> Sorry, as someone from the Southwest, it spends time in L.A., which is not part of the Southwest, and then Texas. Okay, rather okay. So he, but one thing I do like about that is that. Originally, when vendors went to make this movie, they were going to shoot it where it was going to be all across America. They were going yes. to have this like road trip, and mm-hmm. instead, um, Sam Shepard, who wrote this movie, you know the um, the Pulitzer, not Pulitzer Prize. Um, what is the playwrights prize that they get? He's award winning, guys. Um, Tony. No, no, I can't remember what it was he, he got. He, uh, Pulitzer, he got the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Oh, he did get the Pulitzer Prize. Okay, so he's Pulitzer Prize, you know, playwright. Um, he convinced vendors not to do that. He said, uh, quote, you know, don't bother with all his zigzagging. You can find the whole of America in one state of Texas. And then Vendor said, I, at that time, I didn't know Texas all that well, but I trusted Sam. I traveled around Texas for a couple of months, and I had to agree with him. Everything I wanted to have in my film was in there. Texas uh, was America in miniature. And what I like about this, no, but hear me out here. Hear me out. Um, I know I'm going to have to defend this for an hour, but uh, here's here's what I like about it. Um, This movie makes a very conscious decision from beginning to end to show you every single size of American town. All the way from the the two person town of Camelot, Texas, which is the gas station, to uh, you know slightly larger towns of a couple thousand people, um, moving into uh, Los Angeles, where it shows Los it shows Los Angeles not as a city but as a giant suburb. Um, it never really feels like a city because they never show you any of the city. It's only the suburbs surrounding it where Walt lives, and then eventually back. To, te- to Texas, where we see Houston, which is a large urban area. And you kind of get each of those locales in a very condensed amount of geography. And I think that that worked to vendors' benefit because you, you, you don't need them to go across the entire country to see big to small. No, I, I agree that you don't need to go across the entire country to see big to small. I mean, yeah, the, Texas definitely has very tiny towns and it has extremely large, like, metropoli- you know, metropolitan areas. It's got very big cities and very big suburban areas around them. I, mm-hmm. 
disagree that it shows a microcosm of America. As someone who lives in the northeast of yeah. the United States and has been to the southeast of the United States and has been to the mid, you know, the Midwest, I, I, I would disagree that it shows the entire range of yeah. America. You know who says that it shows the entire range of America? People from Texas. And look, I have family in <laughs> Texas. I will I will speak of Texas with, with a bit of love. But Texas is, and I'm sorry to our listeners there, pretty full of itself. <laughs> yeah, I, and, I, and I think part of that, so part of that might be, and I'll concede that I think there is a romanticized, uh, there's a romanticized Western, and I mean Western in the sense of like, a style of film capital w western capital capital w western there's romanticized you know lone cowboy walks into the sunset style of america that that vendors is trying to encapsulate it's something that probably makes sense considering he's an outsider looking in so that might be something that he that is something he really liked he loved road movies which is why he made this movie um he loved that american you know west style and i think that you know this movie's transatlantic in nature right even i mean even the title alludes to that right paris texas um and i think because of that maybe that's why that disconnect exists versus having an american filmmaker make this who is more aware of the cultural broadness of the country as a whole um but i do really like the the microcosms of neighborhoods and sizes of towns because like it, there's something special about the way he films los angeles for me that really makes it feel like a suburb which is a unique thing to do it's this annoying suburb that is like this suburb inside of a concrete desert but also well, always has planes going over it because Walt was cheap and bought a house near the airport. No, 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 um, what, not cheap. No, Are, okay. You want to go look at uh, like the the price of real estate in L.A. or the surrounding area and sure, tell me he's sure. cheap? No, I know no, that, like, but but he but he it was a less than optimum play. And he even says in the movie, he's like, I got you know, I was able to get a great deal on this. It's right next to the airport. Yeah. Like that's kind of the duality of living in LA. Like, like L LA, if you can really afford to live there, you're not going to live in LA. You're going to live somewhere you can travel to LA from. Yeah, you're yeah. going to live in Laurel Canyon. You're going to yes. live in, you know, uh, Bel Air or you know wherever you can happen to afford to live. Yeah, and it it sounds like, but he lives in the poltergeists area of the LA suburbs. <laughs> That's what they call it. It's the official name of it. Uh, this is the Poltergeist neighborhood. He lives in the, the houses made of ticky tacky, you know, where they're all right. exactly the same. And the numbers, the house numbers have five digits in them. Right. <laughs> yes. But, but see, I like that because I've, I, I don't normally see depictions of LA in film that feel like a suburb. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I do also like how they had the film around just constant jet plane noise because it's so loud in the movie. <laughs> like there are scenes where you have to struggle to hear what they're saying because this is just an omnipresent thing in Walt's life. Um, well, yeah, it's like the 
you know, the Blues Brothers with the trains going by. How right. often does a train come? So often you won't even notice it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Can we talk about Walt for just a hot minute? Yeah, oh, uh, unload Walt. your your Walt distaste. <laughs> he's he's here to uh, Walt. And this is and this is like a this is a uh, like a praise to Dean Stockwell that Walt is so infuriating to watch. <laughs> and so is, in what way? Break it down. So he, I don't know. He has this reality. He's living in his head. That is not the reality that, that other people are living in. And he uh, refuses to kind of stand up for himself. And he, like, like, like when he finds Travis, who has just been, who has dis- been disappeared for four years and is just walking endlessly when he finds him, the first thing he does is like leave him alone. <laughs> Which is <laughs> like, come on, man. Like that's so obvious that the first thing he's gonna do is wander off in that situation. You have not had any connection with him. But then even when he does get Travis back to LA, he is he has no spine. He is not he is not willing to engage really engage with his brother in a way that his brother probably needs to deal with his stuff to the point that the one time he actually is like come on man tell me what happened he immediately turns around and is like never mind i'm sorry take all my money (laughs) right but i think that that's see i like that i find it infuriating i agree he's he's a character that's it's realistic i won't say it's not but it's frustrating. <laughs> right, because we there are people in families, um, and I, I know them in, in real life, where they they are, you know, that type of spineless, where it's like, I just need to try to keep the family together here, and yeah, yeah I'm going to give you mm. my money, and no, I'm not really going to ask, and I'm not going to press you very hard, and I might even enable you, which he does with Travis to an extent. Mm. Um, yeah. But that is a... F- type of family member that exists and i feel like this movie captures oh, yeah. that well yeah yeah no i'm not saying he's doing a bad job exactly i'm just saying i don't like the character yes that's, that's, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. yeah um I, I i do love travis's amazement in that scene you, re- you referenced david travis's amazement of billboards like like there's this oh there's you're this, the one who makes those yeah like you're the one who makes all those right and he's like wow some of them are really beautiful and i think that's kind of what i love about harry dean stanton in this movie is that he you know vendors said that the reason he wanted him in this movie and the reason they wrote this part for him for the lines he does say is because he is a uh, he's one of those guys who is a grown man that just looks and sounds and feels like they still have their inner child in a way and that's kind of an intangible thing that's hard to describe and he has that sounds and feels yeah i would say sounds and feels like he has his inner child but like every single looks movie like a burlap, burlap sack yeah <laughs> yeah every, no, i was not going to say that i was going to i i literally asked in our slack at one point though it's like was harry dean stanton born 60 years old yeah, no, no this movie was 1984 <laughs> it is like a long time ago and he looked like yeah he he did look pretty much the way that he looked towards the end of his but life there's there's this intangible yeah, I, like like twinkle in his eye that just there's and this is him as an actor and a person that just like feels youthful to me and i have a hard time putting pinning down what that is but something about the way he expresses himself feels youthful like harry it's I, a, I, he's good at 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I just want to. I just want to illustrate this for everyone. Harry Dean Stanton was at the Battle of Okinawa, like he was. He was in it. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. No, um, he did. He did have a gift for playing naive characters. Yes. He did. Like if you take his character in Alien. Yeah. You know he's <laughs> he's Yafet Kodo's sidekick. He's the yes man. He's the one who agrees with everything his buddy says. And he's the one who, you know, they take him in the room where it's dripping from the condensation. And he just stands there and takes off his hat and enjoys feeling, you know, the the rain inside the spaceship kind of thing. And he takes mm-hmm. that moment and he's just totally in touch with the moment. Well, um, it- and he's really good at that in every role I've seen him in. I, I think I think to to totally emphasize that point, he's in Avengers, which we probably don't ever really think of him. Oh yeah, yeah. he is the security right. guard that discovers uh, Bruce Banner after he fell out of the sky, and just his reaction to the <laughs> moment is so Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> it's just like you were a big green fellow when you fell. Uh, here's some pants. Like it's just it's this perfect <laughs> mix of like. Well, okay, I guess this is happening, and yeah. no one can do it like he could. And he had he had a love of Paris, Texas, because it was the film. You know, he was quoted saying that um, that everything he had done in his life, career wise, up to Paris, Texas, was was the was the prison term that that he served. Um, which which I probably unfair to a lot of some of his really good work, um, but. He felt that like, oh, now this is finally my time to be at the center of a movie because he was like that iconic character actor that was never, never. He was always a sidekick, never, you know, the leading man. And this movie gave him a little bit to chew on in that regard. And I think to credit his performance, when he does talk very little, uh, he's very there's something about the way he plays off the silence that is just was compelling to me. I was, I was really waiting to see how it would unfold. And when he finally does start talking, it's just tiny little tidbits that start to unravel as like, okay, so he was wandering in the desert. He has this, um, this innocent idea of starting a family where his family began and trying to start anew. And these things slowly start unraveling for his character. And I think he plays it really well. I, I don't, I, Oh, sorry. I was just saying, I don't for a minute, I don't want to disparage the acting in this movie because I think the acting mm-hmm. in this movie is very good. He is very good in this movie. T- to your point, when he's talking, when he first starts talking in the movie and he's talking about the story their father told, it's so, it, it feels like this is not a script written. It is him just talking. Like his, the character, the, the, the character feels real through him. I, any issues I have with this movie is not at all with with him or with mm-hmm. anyone else acting in this movie. It is very well acted. Yeah, totally. And and, and there is this... It's interesting because I, I look at this movie and I had a gut feeling that you guys might not like it, but I knew we could get a good discussion, which is why I kind of <laughs> went for it. Because I read online and I read the Criterion Collection stuff and I look at Rotten Tomatoes. And like I, I know that this is a beloved movie and most critics like it, but I agree in the sense that there's a lot of stuff to pick apart. Um, for me, it really jives, and I don't know what part of it is that for me. I think part of it is Harry Dean Sand's character. I think part of it is that 
I grew up in in Nevada, which is not in this movie, but like I I have this connection to deserty spaces, and this movie is that, that this movie kind of hits on that on that uh, that cylinder for me. Um, and I think also the eventual connection between Travis and Jane. And so we'll talk, we'll get to that. I, I want to, I want to drive us through the plot of this movie because I was reading one critic that argued that it's, it's kind of three movies in one in a way, um, which would Run be time wise. Yeah, I knew, I knew you're going to say that. Um, <laughs> but it kind of is because you have this tonal shift between each the, you have the first one, which is the first time they're in Texas and Walt goes down to Texas to find, uh, to find Travis and bring him home to LA and get him reunited with his son, who Walt has been taking care of as a father surrogate. Uh, Walt's uh, wife has been taken care of as a mom. The, the kid calls them mom and dad. Um, so there's there's kind of a there's a whole other discussion to be had. I think about the the family dynamic of being the kid who knows that your parents aren't your parents, but they might as well be. And then your dad, sh- your actual dad, shows up and. How do you juggle that? How do you how do you quantify that as a kid? Um, and this kid does that a little bit in this movie. But you have this first part where he goes and gets him. And then you have the second part where they do meet the kid. And it's in L.A. And it's in that, you know, L.A. suburb with constant airplanes. And this is where we probably find out the most about Travis in terms of him starting to talk and um, starting to remember. There's a really beautiful scene in this movie, which I know is Harry Dean Stanton's favorite scene, where uh, Walt is showing him videos of a family vacation to try to get a spur his memory because we never really know why he lost his memory um and it's like it's a really emotional scene and you can tell he's like slowly starting to remember some of these things um and then there's the third part of the movie which is he kidnaps question mark his son no it's not but isn't it kind of a kidnapping if you don't have parental permission that's his son and his son wants to go with him yeah, I'm I not guess. saying that it's not wrong. It's very to take wrong. Hunter with him. <laughs> it is very wrong to take Hunter with him, but legally he's okay. At least he's like, uh, well, unless unless Hunter has become, uh, unless unless the, unless Walt and his wife have become like his guardians legally, which we don't really know a lot about. Like Walt, like that's almost the naivete of Walt in a sense. Is Walt just expects to like reintroduce this father into this relationship and how the heck is that supposed to work like what does that mean and walt does a really bad job of navigating that in my opinion everyone in this movie is super accepting of things super quickly (laughs) i mean the kid takes a while to warm up to his to 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 travis though he takes two days i think it feel maybe it feels like two days but i think i think we're meant to believe he's with the family for at least a time really all right not to get too much into you know personal daddy issues but into it as a kid whose parents got divorced uh when i was four and my father kind of took off and i did not see him again until i was 16 um i can tell you that as an 8 year old I would have been, I'd have been weirded out 
by my dad reappearing, but there were parts of me that were absolutely starving for it and wouldn't have cared what kind of person he was as long as he was there. But and then if he were going to leave again, I would not want to let him go. So I would have done exactly well. what this kid does. But did you have a father figure in the way no. that assumingly Hunter had with Walt? I did I did not. I we lived with my grandmother. So it was my mom and my grandmother as my parental figures. Yeah, well and I will say that Walt and Hunter didn't seem to have a very strong relationship. Yeah, Walt's no. a square in no, a way Hunter that, and that Anne Hunter and Anne did, yes. Hundred percent. Yeah, I and, and that's that's what strikes me as interesting about this movie because like like similar to similar to Nicole in in a different way, I could I could relate to it a little bit because like, you know, I you know, my dad, my parents got divorced around the age that this kid would be in this movie, seven, eight years old, um, or a little bit later than that. But but my, my they separated when I was around that age, and I did have like other strong father like figures. And then I do remember that like for a time when my dad was back in my life, like how do I juggle this? Like who is who is who I'm going to kind of put in that position in my mind and the kid mm -hmm. and, and I and I, I I can see that calculus kind of running with the kid and first he's embarrassed he goes to like stages like he's creeped out by him he doesn't like him he's embarrassed by him because he's he's scary looking and kind of vagabondy <laughs> and then he like slowly starts to come around to him I love the scene where Travis realizes that he's freaking the kid out and he shows up to the school again um, which by the way just like don't stand outside elementary schools just like it's just <laughs> <laughs> it, it, there's, it's just weird. Uh, Travis does come off as weird, but he's like wearing this like fine white suit and a fedora, and he and they they're walking on opposite sides of the street. And every single time they go between cars and disappear, uh, Travis reappears and he's doing a little jig or something like that. And it's cute, like he's trying to connect with him and trying to make him scene. feel yes. more like this is a guy that's not creepy. Um, and and I think. I, I'd like to see that connection explored and the movie doesn't do a ton of that. Um, d d yes, it does not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because that, because then we do jump to like, okay, I'm taking you with me. And I will say Travis is very, well, it, is, is generous. I'm not generous, but he's like, at least he's responsible enough to say, call your parents and let them know I'm taking you. <laughs> and, and him, and him taking the child is actually totally fine. If the movie then were to become about him, learning about his son and them connecting. But the movie kind of does that before ultimately turning into what's best for Hunter, which again is, I don't, I don't just want to beat around this point again and again, which again is, is okay. But the movie then becomes kind of focused on trying to get what's best for Hunter versus this character mm -hmm. that we've been following the whole time and, and going with him through that journey. Yeah. Like, is this a story of father son reconnection and fatherhood and what it means to be a dad and him rediscovering what it means to be a dad, which we don't really get, or yeah, is or this a story of, right. Of, of what is best for this kid reconnecting with his family, which we only truly understand in the, in the final few minutes when we realize that, okay, Travis is actually separating from this. Um, mm -hmm. I totally get what you're saying there. Uh, let's talk about when they when they arrive in Houston, which is where they now know that Jane is, because Jane, Travis's wife, they're still married, presumably. Um, mm. She 
married on paper anyway, because it doesn't seem like there was even a yeah. divorce. Yeah. They just kind of separated and disappeared. And, and, you know, he went and did what he did. Um, she goes to Houston and works in like the most eighties peep show. Like you got to hope that places like this don't <laughs> exist anymore. Cause it's just so weird. Um, but it's it's a it's like this peep show where guys can talk to women through phones behind a, a, a one way mirror, um, and they're in like different settings and different uh, you know rooms and different like uh, you know thematic <laughs> thematic right, situations. The coffee shop, the beach, yeah, the, 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 the naughty nurse. Yeah, like all of them are there. Yeah, um, and he tracks her down because they find out that she was sending money, wiring money into an account for hunter and had stayed in an infrequent but but some somewhat regular contact with Anne um until eventually that kind of got cut off because she was having too much trouble seeing her child grow up because Anne was sending her photos and telling her about hunter she was having too much trouble seeing her kid grow up without her so she had to kind of separate but she was still don't putting money in and they know that she goes to this bank every single month on this day to drop the money in and um they go and they stake out the bank and he falls asleep. Travis, you had one job. You had <laughs> one fair, job and you no, left it to the eight year old no, with binoculars. No. To be fair, he apparently, cause they got to Houston very early in the morning. Right. And Houston from LA is not a short drive. No. Uh, so he was probably doing that drive no. through the night. Like yeah. I don't, I don't blame him for falling asleep. It was it was an ill-conceived plan on every front <laughs> to begin with, right? But they actually do. Uh, <laughs> a hunter does spot his mom, which which is in, somewhat unbelievable in the sense that all he has to go off of is like one photo and some videos he's seen. Um, but he does spot her, and which leads to one of the most like stress-inducing scenes of the movie for me, which is them following her around uh, on the freeway in Houston, where, of course, another car of the Why same make and model and color. Because, like, another car of the same make and model and color shows up, and they're trying to follow her. Or they're trying to keep up with her. And then there's also this this moment where each car goes in separate directions, one right, one left, and they have to make the decision of which one they're going to follow. And if they ruin that if they miss out and follow the wrong car they have no leads they have nothing they have to wait another month before she shows up at that bank again yeah, yeah but i mean it's been four years what's another month you know uh, yeah i guess <laughs> be, be an adult travis <laughs> man okay. well th this 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 kind of gets into something for me a little bit which is there's no there's no reason for them for there to be a second car when it becomes a MacGuffin. Not even a MacGuffin. <laughs> it becomes pointless. They follow the correct car. Yeah. Why why is there a second car? And then, it's again, anxious I, it, in the moment. Yeah. This is I guess this is me coming down to like the one discussion topic I put into the show notes because the two of you put a lot in there before before I finished the movie and got to it, which is you can cut a lot out of this movie. It's two and a half hours long. This movie could be two hours easy. Yeah, I do agree with yeah. that. There's there's a lot of um, superfluous wandering 
And I mean that in the most literal sense. We don't need to see as much of him wandering around in the beginning as we do. Yeah, I think it's but effective, also, right. but I think it's effective. And I do like the prolonged, um, you know, silence before we hear him finally, but there's still too much. I agree with that. But also just scenes that go on for a while uh, in silences that go on for a very long time you know when he walks around la and sees that guy yelling at traffic which is a a fine little scene but ultimately is nothing and when you're asking me to watch a two and a half hour movie why is that scene in there it's an interesting scene and it's it's trying to say something, but I think what it's trying to say isn't relevant enough to the rest of the narrative yeah. that I, it I, fits I, in there properly. I, yeah. Yeah. It, there's something to it of like, you know, Travis is seeing someone that also looks and sounds off his rocker. And maybe there's something to what that guy has going on in his life. And I, there's something there, but I totally agree you, that we're really, I'm grasping at straws. I get it. Uh, <laughs> I, don't want to, I, I don't want you to think, Brett, that I am totally against this movie. I'm not. Yeah. No, like not not in in at all. I just think that there is a good movie in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and that's okay. So I, I don't want to say that's a bad movie. It's not a bad movie. I think there is a great movie in here that this movie just kind of misses at parts. Yeah, it can get self-indulgent, and that might be the right. Yes, that I might think, be the yeah. right um, mm-hmm. way to describe it. it. Um, and I think you have to be in a very specific headspace to watch it too. Um, so I'd like to talk about the the interaction finally between Travis and Jane. There's two of them. The first one is when they follow her to the peep show, and he goes inside and he kind of figure, figures out the lay of the land and finds where she's working and, and gets her to come down. He him posing as a patron, um, and what I really like about what happens in the next 20 minutes of this movie after this is that we see that Travis is not even close to healing and becoming a better person yet because the reason that we later find out that their marriage fell apart and their relationship fell apart was because he was manipulative and he was incredibly jealous and he was irrational with that jealousy. And, um, and he was just, he, he, he owned her in, in so many horrible ways. He wasn't a good partner. And when he sees her at the peep show, his initial response is like accusatory in the sense like, oh, you must have guys that come in here and, and you know, pay you a little ec- for something extra, don't you? And she says, no, the, the show doesn't do that. And he pushes her because he's looking for something to say like, oh my God, you're sleeping with guys at this peep show and he's looking for something like that and she doesn't give it to him because it's not there but he's convinced in his jealousy that it is there that 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 jealousy that ruined their relationship immediately returns to him and then similarly the alcoholism that also ruined his relationship immediately returns after that he stumbles on out of there doesn't even open up to her about who he is and goes to the nearest bar and his eight-year-old son has to drag him into what seems to be a vacant home in order to put him to bed and it just shows like he is not where he needs to be yet. The same issues are still there. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. 
he uh he's got a lot to unravel especially with his ex yeah um but he does go back and and he this is when he gives this scene this uh this monologue uh so david it's time for you to monologue for 10 minutes oh Um, (laughs) jeez. but but i i i there's something captivating about this monologue and i've seen it a couple times in the last couple weeks as i've been you know preparing to bring this to the panel and it was a scene that that was written over the phone on set because they were filming and vendors for all intents and purposes sounded not totally prepared during this, which is why some of it might seem superfluous because he was like, Oh my God, we need something to happen in the scene. Someone call Sam Shepard. They called him (laughs) up and over the phone were like, Hey, here's a scene. Here's what's happening. They've met. What do I do? And then Sam Shepard dictates the, the monologue to some to a grip over the phone who writes it down and then they bring it to uh harry dean stanton and say like you you're gonna have to get through this here it is learn it and you can say cut whenever you want because we understand that you're it's gonna be it's it's one take it's a tough scene to get through as an actor and he he took him a whole day to do it 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 took jane way too long to realize that he was Wait, talking yeah. about them wouldn't you notice the voice of your significant I, that's a whole other yeah separate thing um well she does say later that every voice sounds like his voice to her yeah every voice that comes through that speaker sounds like his voice right and and but there this the scene when he when he recounts the tragedy of their relationship and the demise of their family and he tells it to her in a story and and she realizes fairly quickly then that it's him um and it's shot so stunningly with this with this peep show window that she has now turned off the lights on the inside so she can kind of see him but not too much of him and he's turned around because he can't bear to even look at her and you have this juxtaposition of him giving the speech over the phone um, the only way he can do it turned around and then her reacting largely with like facial expressions until the end of it. And so much kudos to this actress because she does so much with so little in what she's given. She's just reacting piece by piece to this, this story unravel. And it's just, it, there's something really haunting about the scene to me that I just, I love. I think it's a beautiful scene. I would I would argue she's she is doing a lot with what she's given, but it's still not enough. Mm-hmm. She's not given enough. She hasn't had enough background established. Yeah. She doesn't have enough you know, you don't know anything about what she has been like as a person, except that she was young and pretty. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She I, I get why she would get away from this relationship. They make that clear at the end, but mm-hmm. it's n- never clear why she abandons Hunter and why she puts Hunter in the care of these other people. And, you know, Travis kind of hints at it of like, well, you know, cause she was young and like, she didn't really want to be a mother and stuff like that. But that's not, I think explored enough in the movie itself. I, I don't know. I think she, I, I agree with Nicole and with you, Brett, that she, does a good job with what she has with that that by the time we get to that scene it has just been so long and and i like that scene a lot i would have liked that scene in a tighter movie a lot better Mm. because it is such a slow scene 
and it is mm-hmm. two hours into a two and a half hour movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. If it was an hour and a half into a two hour movie, it would have been, I think, just a lot better, I guess. Right. And if even if there'd been any characterization from other people, you know, not necessarily from her point of view, but nobody talks about what Jane was like as the person ever. Just that she was this young girl who was with Travis. This is weirdly a movie where the women are the most interesting characters. And we get not enough time with either of the two yeah. women of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I totally hear what you guys are saying with that. I, I think we get enough of... I think we get enough to infer why she might have left, including why she might have left her son in the sense that she oh, I was... I she left the relationship. Oh, oh, I know that, but I mean, like, I think she leaves everything because she's so broken, and and she gives her mm. monologue kind of back to him in the sense where, you know, she says, um, you know, when she left, I could hear you, I could see you, smell you, I could hear your voice, sometimes your voice would wake me up, it would wake me up in the middle of the night, just like you were in the room with me, and then it slowly faded, and I couldn't picture you anymore. Um, I tried to talk out loud to you like I used to, but there's nothing there, and then I just gave up, everything stopped, and you disappeared, and now I'm working here, and I hear your voice all the time. Every man has your voice. This is a woman Okay. Who was era, you know, so broken by this relationship, her entire life kind of collapsed around it. And, but see, this is the the biggest problem I have with the movie is that everything that she's saying is about him mm. and not about her. It's all I talk to you all the time. She doesn't say what she would say to him. She doesn't say how she felt about talking to him all the time, just that she that she did. And it all yep. revolves around him and that she, you know, the fact that she would talk to him, but not what she would say or how she felt or if she felt, you know, upset or why she fell in love with this guy who's like at least, you know, 40 years older than she is <laughs> yeah. in the first yeah. place. <laughs> yeah. She... What brought them together? What, why did she feel like she needed to leave? I mean, it's, you know, it's clear why any reasonable adult would have left at that time. But, you know, why would an 18 year old leave this relationship kind of thing when mm, this yeah. is the the only security she has um we but you know there's just there's not enough about her agency what does she want why does she want it where does she want to go i can understand why she would leave a kid just purely given her age at the time in the breakup of the relationship but we're, we're not given enough then of what has changed between then and now Right. She's yeah. ready to accept him again. What has she gone through? What yes. Is... We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The movie could give her, uh, and, and maybe that, that, that not maybe that, that probably is a fault of a manly man screenwriter, right? Like Sam Shepard is, is <laughs> Sam like, Shepard is a very manly man as yeah, a writer. So that, yes. that, that, that could be a huge part of that. And, and I, I would like to see her have more agency in that conversation. I think you're totally right, Nicole. Um, and I think also it's on, on Vendor's behalf, uh, there's an interesting kind of archetype that she represents. So th- there's this interesting article in The Guardian um, talking, uh, their, their film critic was talking about why it was his favorite 
uh, Cannes winner because this actually won three awards that year at the festival and swept the festival much to the chagrin of the festival. Like they, they actually presented that year and said, we'd really like stuff that wins to be more family oriented this year. And this is not more family oriented. <laughs> Guys, um, <laughs> come on. Like, come on. God, don't vote for this movie. Right. But they really liked it. But, but the girl it, abandons her child and goes to work at a peep show. You know? <laughs> um, Which, so. <laughs> a weirdly sexless peep show. Weirdly sexless peep. Which, uh, I, as I was clicking around on links here in the Wikipedia article, linked from the Paris, Texas Wikipedia page, the last peep show in. Uh, Las Vegas just closed last year, so that was uh, still a viable business option <laughs> for a time. <laughs> Yikes. Um, so anyway, Guy Lodge is the name of the Guardian, um, the Guardian film critic, and he says, uh, in regard to Jane, uh, there's the gold hearted saloon girl in this western as well, uh, Jane, the strayed, mistreated wife and mother, played by uh, Natasha. Kinski, um, among the most incandescently Nastasia Kinski, um, among the most incandescently artificial blondes in all cinema. Instead of ruffled bloomers, <laughs> she wears a hot pink Angora jumper. Instead of a saloon, she plies her trade in a dingy Houston peep show booth. It's that confined space, sliced in half by a one-way mirror, that hosts the film's name-making scene. As Travis, having tracked her down, relates the story of their bad romance in minute self in minute self mutilating detail. You'd call it a monologue of Kinsey's perfect face weren't constantly responding to every scarred revelation cinematographer uh robert muller um robbie muller that's robert uh, okay <laughs> sorry i got totally sidetracked there by someone named robert muller that wasn't who i thought it was um a veritable sorcerer of light throughout shoots this dual confessional uh with ingenious fluidity every word mediated by the mirror's foil blue glimmer it's a pretty scene for sure but i think she, that analog of her being the gold-hearted artificial sal blonde saloon girl is kind of what vendors is going for it uh, look and it's it is a great scene she is beautiful in it he delivers the monologue very well she reacts very well to it it is a it is a great scene it has just been a lot to get to that point yeah mm -hmm. And, and, and I think she's still broken by it, too. You know, like toward the end of his speech, she's sitting on the ground and just seems so broken again. It seems like any healing she might have gone through just seems to kind of have just, eh, just yeah, no, reopened. No, no, the scab has been ripped off. No, no one in this movie has gone through healing. Oh, God, no. None <laughs> of these people have dealt with their issues. Yeah, they I get have abandoned she a child and uh, wandered through a desert. Right. Yeah, I, I <laughs> abandoned a child, wandered through a desert. That's more or less true. Um, does it, going back to wandering through a desert very briefly, does it matter if we know why Travis departs abruptly and gets amnesia? Or does it not matter? Is this just the story of his attempted redemption? I, mean, I would imagine it's the alcohol. Right. It's the, it's the <laughs> right. alcohol. It is the traumatic moment of waking up and your house is on fire. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I could see how that would affect you, you know? It, might, it, it might could be. be. I was just wondering, I was wondering if you guys were looking for more answers in that first half hour. It's, 
Because we never get him. Like, he never tells Walt why he did what he did. There's never really totally any context to what he did, aside from the fact that he was in the area dropping by his plot of land. (laughs) But I I never took that as amnesia. I took that as he doesn't want to deal with it. Yeah. It's it's denial. Yes. More than amnesia. No, I I don't need answers in the first half hour of a movie. I'm a I am a patient watcher. <laughs> you know, I will watch I will I will happily watch two and a half three hour movies all the time. Out of, but, out of the three of us, and Nicole understand will that sometimes about way earlier. <laughs> yeah. So I mean this is this is not something where I tap out just because nothing is quote unquote happening in the first half of a movie, but there needs to be an adequate payoff for my mm. patience. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I get that emotional payoff with this movie. I think largely because of what it, David said about how it, it, you know, it leaves the person you're emotionally tied to and takes a different perspective at mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. The end does have this idea of him, you know, riding into the sunset as the lone, um, emotionally detached cowboy in a sense. And, I yeah. like it in the sense that it doesn't feel like it has to give me a happy ending because there there's no. there's kind of a happy ending in the sense that, you know, yes, Jane is reunited with her son and I do think it's shot beautifully. I think she acts it very well. Um but it, it's like it's all still so sad like because Travis is is broken and and is and knows mm-hmm. that he can't fix this and does and knows that it's not his job to be part of this family anymore, which is why he doesn't go with Jane. And Jane's gonna have to deal with like, like, like reintroducing herself into her son's life in a way that's not going to screw him up for life. And then the the aunt and uncle Walton and Anne are gonna have to deal with the potential fallout of losing their surrogate son to his mother. Yeah. You don't even deal with that. The movie does not deal with that no, at but all. I think that's okay. Like yeah. I like that the movie ends and it just, it's just like, you know, families are difficult and complex and growing up can really suck if you don't have stable parents and you, and, and a lot of kids go through that. And I feel like this movie leaves you. I don't think they, they I don't think they need to show me what happens to Hunter because it's going to be a shit show. And that's just life. That's how it is for kids like that. Like, I was one of those kids. I get it, you know? It it makes it an unsatisfying ending, though. I can be satisfied by a sad ending. I can be satisfied by an ending where everybody goes their separate ways and Mm -hmm. it's bad for everyone. But just the way that this ends is, you know, this person that we've identified with the whole way does something reprehensible. He may think that he's doing the right thing by removing himself from his son's life. But, you know, there's a fine balance as a parent between doing what's right for your child and doing something that they understand as good and right and what they want from you. And, what Travis does, I think, is reprehensible. You know, he's doing what he thinks is right for his kid without any consideration of how much this is going to break his kid's heart. 
No, and hundred percent, and pulling him away from in yeah, poor Hunter is completely screwed over, and poor Anne, right? I feel gets it the worst in this movie. She's a mother, gets her kid taken away essentially because she is she is his mom. You know, the best thing, the best thing Travis could have done. There's this this. uh, All right. I'm sorry, right? You have to censor right here. Mark this timestamp. It is bullshit. The best thing that he can do for his son is take him back to a mother that abandoned him. That, yeah. no, that is not. And then leave. Yeah. And then leave. Yeah. He doesn't know that Jane is not going to, in two weeks, decide, oh, no, I can't do this. I'm not fit to be a mother. The best thing he could have done was leave Hunter in LA with two people with a stable life who were raising him in a stable mm-hmm. environment. And see, maybe maybe that's where I like this part of the movie because I think parents, especially bad parents, make dumb decisions and he doesn't mm-hmm. make a great decision here at the end. And that feels real to me. It feels real to me that he thinks he's the hero at the end, or at the very least, he thinks he's done the right thing. And in reality, it's going to mess up this kid's life. And there might be the short, um, the short uh, relief on both Hunter and 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 Jane's behalf of finally being reunited, and this is happy and exciting. But you know that it's going to be a mess. And there's something real about families to me there that I can't quite put my finger on, where it's like I don't want him to do something better because if he just does what's right for hunter it doesn't feel as real to me because that's not what all parents do unfortunately i can see where you're coming from i just i didn't like it yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's the movie it's a movie give me the ending that is going to make sure this kid's going to be okay because now i got to go through my yeah. day this fictional child that's going to right. not be okay. Yeah, no, he's got a lifetime of trauma to look forward to. Um, so let's talk about trauma. Uh, does Travis's level of trauma and speed of recovery jive with what's happening between him and Jane? Um, no, and, and I will, <laughs> and I'll admit that this is his speed of recovery is somewhat jarring at times. I think the speed of this movie is pretty jarring. I don't I don't agree with you, Brett, that like some time has passed since he joined the family. It seemed to be like he was there okay, for yeah. less than a week. Maybe and not. Then- maybe not. And it doesn't do And, and to, to, to your point. It doesn't do a great job of illustrating if that is the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know when he when he comes out of the desert. I mean, if it were like just their trailer had been on fire, like if if Jane had set their trailer on fire and left and Travis woke up to the trailer on fire and his wife gone and been bewildered by the whole thing, I could kind of see him wandering through the desert for a while afterward and being so mm-hmm. dissociated. But I I think it's just... You know, when he first comes out of the desert and his brother encounters him, I honestly wondered if this character is this character on the autism spectrum. Does he have PSTD? Was he in a war? Does he, you know, what's PTSD? Sorry. Uh, was he in a war? Did something 
was he hit by a car? I don't know. You know, <laughs> yeah. what happened to this guy? But I don't see this as the kind of reaction you have when you're, or maybe I see it as you don't have the right to this kind of reaction when oh, you're the instigator mm -hmm. of the end of the relationship. Yeah, when, when, when you're the when you tie you're the your one wife who to a stove. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah when older. you started sending things sour, I don't, I feel like you don't have the right to feel this traumatized by something you could control. And that's wrong. totally fair. Um, you know, I, I definitely want to stress as much as I rhapsodize about how much I, I like the, the development and acting of, of this character and of Harry Dean Stanton. Um, he, you're 100% right in the fact that he is the catalyst for his own problems. Um, he is a bad person. Um, it seems that, you know, his warmness as the movie goes on seems to elude that maybe he's got some of his stuff together. But then, as I mentioned earlier, yeah. he falls right back apart as soon, as soon as he first encounters Jane for the first time. He, he's, he's never going to deal with this stuff. He's always going to be running away. <laughs> He's yeah. going to uh he's gonna meet whoever he's gonna meet next, and that's gonna be ill fated for its time, and he's, and he's gonna move on. He is just gonna continue yeah. wandering until this character does not live to be 91, as Harry Dean Stanton did. This character will drink himself to death in a cantina. Yeah, 100 percent yeah, That's entirely possible. I think that's part of what I found frustrating about the movie is that you know as the movie goes on i i do kind of get to like travis yes. you know once he starts actually talking i get to like travis he seems like a nice enough guy just he's messed up clearly um but he's trying to reconnect with his family and he's trying to reconnect with his you know with his brother and his sister-in-law and he's trying to reconnect with his son and really making an effort and you know talking to the housekeeper and getting advice from her on yeah, how to be a dad she oh, yeah. by the way <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind, kind of a cute out little of nowhere yeah. <laughs> um but i mean that's you know, he gets to be likable. And then, like you say, you know, as soon as he gets to Jane, all of a sudden this this ugly anger kind of pops out. And you're just like, oh, whoa, whoa, where did this come from? Why does she deserve this? Does she deserve this? And if she doesn't, is he not as good of a guy as I had thought he was? Yeah. And then he, you know, then he leaves his kid again. And it's just, it's not to say that it's a, bad movie because of this i mean it's just it's a very effectively drawn character harry mm -hmm. dean stanton does a fantastic job with the character of travis but he's just a frustrating character in the end yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah, 100%. yeah. And, and, and as i said earlier i think maybe maybe the reason that jives with me is you know based on both personal and just experience i feel like like his failure as a human being <laughs> at, at, a, at a point in this movie and also his failure as a father feels real to me, even if it's unfulfilling in a way. Um, mm. And I think that it might be what really is like, because there is that kind of dad or, or partner where you do get to know them and they are, they do seem likable and, but there is this side of him that is literally like a switch that is triggered by her. 
and that's totally a personality type. And uh, there's something about that that with him that that really struck me as as profound. Um, not as profound as Dean Stockwell's eyebrows for Nicole. Apparently, <laughs> um, care to comment? That's just a it's a chronic thing. I mean, number one. Unfortunately, you know, Dean Stockwell is one of those actors where it's just, I never quite ever connect with any of his characters that he's ever played. Um, mm-hmm. So I I don't have a lot of affection for him, which is not to say that he's bad, just that I've never connected to anything that he's played. Um, but those gigantic eyebrows are like giant teddy bear caterpillars on his face. And I keep waiting for them to turn into these, you know, like little chrysalises and become <laughs> butterflies eventually. Um, but, you know, guys, you know, groom, groom at least a little bit, little bit, you know, big eyebrows are in vogue, but not that big, never that big. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> he's, he's still a little alive, bit 80, of plucking here and there. 83 years old. Um, wait, cool. wait, Dean oh, Stockwell is. Yeah. Oh, this good for him. Right. Good for he made it. Um, <laughs> good for you. You're year, still breathing. Good. In the year two thousand, he voiced Tim Drake in the Batman Beyond Return of the Joker movie. That doesn't mean a lot to you guys, but there's what? someone else in our listening audience who, like me, is Tim just, Drake is a very young character, isn't he? But yes, but I mean, in, in Batman Beyond, he'd be he would be older, but in two thousand, mm-hmm. not near the same age as Dean Stockwell was. <laughs> oh. and, and now I'm just I've gone down a, a smidge of a rabbit hole, and Nicole, I can confirm that young Dean Stockwell that, that his eyebrows eventually like bloomed. I don't know. No, like young Dean Stockwell, <laughs> who I did not realize is the kid in Gentleman's Agreement. Um, in the thirties, still has insane eyebrows. Um, <laughs> what eyebrows for a ten-year-old? Okay. Um, the last thing I want to talk about as we wind down our conversation here is the music in this film, or lack thereof. I know it is it is sparse, <laughs> as Nicole said. It takes sparse to a new level here. Um, so this was scored by Ry Cooter. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Ry Cooter is you know one of one of the most celebrated slide guitarists alive. Um. It's largely just him. There's really not much of a backing band. Um, And I want to read this quote kind of before we talk about it from him, uh, where he says, you know, Vendors was on a deadline. He had to go to the cons festival and he had to get it done. So I said, geez, what do you want me to do? And he said, play Blind Willie Johnson. It'll probably be okay." Again, I say editorially. I think he was slightly unprepared in this movie. Um, yeah. Turning to the quote, uh, there's nothing to it. It's a mood. It's that kind of lonely sound. Trouble with guitars, though, is you always picture one guy in a chair playing the guitar. You don't want that. It's not good. You want to evoke something rather uh, spatially rather than start thinking about people playing the instruments. That's a no-no. But in this case, we were able to move the tone centers around pretty good, and it's a tone-centered idea with this little guitar thing noodling along. It's perfect for this film. It's just great. It's one of those rare things. Um what I love about this soundtrack and why I can listen to it on loop when I'm working is because it's just like, it's the perfect mix of it's just enough there that it, 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 it scores enough of the emotion, particularly in scenes like when they're watching the old family videos. Um, but it subsides so often and lets it be really spare and empty and Ry Cooter's just sitting on that reverb pedal like nobody's business. Um, and it's just, there's something really stunning about the soundtrack to me that I realized could be really 
boring to other people and that might be and i part and i will admit my my lifelong adoration of rai cooter um i find him to be fascinating i find him to be the beacon of you know americana music in his generation and um he did this in three days uh, so i gotta give the guy wow. credit for that the entire thing was done in three days um literally like like weeks before vendors took it to the festival meaning that vendors filmed this entire movie really without an idea of what the music would be because he literally went to cooter and was like play blind willie johnson like what so he didn't even have like a temp track on this to edit to no no because he had he was on deadline he had well, to get the thing done that might um, explain some things yeah i think it really does to be honest but why, I, the, I love- why the pacing is so weird sometimes yeah yeah but, i mean yeah i, I I would say absolutely credit to Ry Cooter. You know, when the the reverb pedal, I mean, yeah, he does sit on it like nobody's business. There are long mm-hmm. stretches where it seems almost yeah. like there's no music in this movie, but there's like a little bit of maybe ambient tone mm-hmm. in the background. And maybe that's what he's doing, but it's absolutely an influential soundtrack like i could think of two movies off the top of my head that were very clearly influenced by this uh one of them is no country for old men yeah Mm -hmm. um carter burwell um has some similar stuff in it to this and then uh, a movie that not many people saw and for good reason uh the counselor um which Ah. was scored by uh, i believe it was daniel pemberton uh, where it's a lot of spare slide guitar in deserty landscapes. Uh, so that's in the counselor? I think that was a direct influence on there as well. The other one, yeah, I, would, I saw I would... the counselor. That's it's it's wow. it's not good. <laughs> yeah, it did not look good. <laughs> the other uh, the other direct influence I'd also kind of reference here is um, you can see the generation of eighties and nineties producers in particular that liked this kind of thing you know this is brian eno's music for airports music for airports is literally designed to be something played in an airport um and there's just enough going on in it that you'd be sitting there in the airport if they did play it in an airport thinking wow that's a little weird um or daniel lenoir who is one of my all-time favorite producers um daniel lenoir most recently in most recent memory did all the soundtrack to the red dead games red dead redemption which is a western mm. and, uh, he's, and he and yeah. he sits on that on that slide guitar pedal the same way um and has in the stuff he's produced as well for emmy lou harris and bob dylan and and um mark knopfler like he that is his style um and and rye kind of runs with that and and to rye's credit like he says in this in this in this interview you don't want to picture in your mind a guy sitting there playing guitar. And because he makes it so ethereal, I don't see that. Like, if he was just sitting there plucking blind Willie McTell, I would picture Ry Cooter sitting there plucking blind Willie McTell. But instead, it's just like the soundscape that he's kind of just, you know, letting, like, float out into the world. And it feels, it doesn't feel like one guy. And I think that's what I like about it. Well... If uh, uh, yes, it's a very good soundtrack when it is there present in the movie. I do enjoy it. But if anybody wishes to purchase it, you can buy the CD on Amazon for $11.20. You can buy the vinyl (laughs) for $25.54. Or if you want the the audio cassette, 
you can spend $41.90. Take my money, me. Maybe you can find it on eBay. (laughs) Probably cheaper, yes. Yeah, man, that is... Yeah, and and like also, I'll I'll very, very briefly say, because we're running long, um, I think in the scheme of American music, it makes sense for someone like Ry Cooter to make this kind of soundtrack, because this is the guy Mm -hmm. that was kind of the spiritual successor to Johnny cash in the sense that, um, you know, he would, he would cover Johnny songs. Johnny came and visited him to talk about music. And even when I saw, when I saw him live last year, he was with Roseanne cash and it was the first time she'd ever played her dad's music live, um, as a tour ever. Mm -hmm. Um, and she said, I would only do this with Ry Cooter because he understood not only the importance of this, but also, just how to play this music the right way. And I, and I mentioned his connection to Johnny Cash there because Johnny Cash, of course, is kind of your North Star for um, country and Americana and all that good stuff. Yeah. And it makes me sad that I'm talking about Ry Cooter like he's this you know, young bastion of the genre, but he's 72 years old. So I hope that, you know, I, there are other people that need to step up and kind of start filling those roles. Um, and there are, you know, there's people like Rand and Giddens and that sort of thing. But there's just something about him for this where it's like, oh yeah, of course that makes sense that Rykerter did this. And later, he went on in the late 90s to do another movie with Vim Benders uh, in Cuba where he did the soundtrack again, which is which is more full. Um, I listened to it this afternoon and Rye has a long-standing history of world music, loves world music, um, has done stuff with uh, Indian musicians and Cuban musicians and Puerto Rican and just all sorts of stuff all across the board. And that soundtrack is fascinating. And I want to find out why he was fined 25 grand by the U.S. government for it. Because apparently he broke, him in particular, not just the production, him in particular broke the embargo between Cuba and the U.S., which makes me think he like imported or exported instruments or something like that i could see him doing that so a different discussion different movie for a different time um thanks for watching it guys i know it was a bit of a slog but i think we got a very good conversation out of it i'm not i'm not mad that i watched this movie it was yeah. a very interesting discussion there was a, a lot to unpack for sure yeah absolutely i mean if it didn't jive with you at least it's you know another checkbox you can tick off and your you know bingo sheet of popular american quote-unquote classic movies um but obviously there's a lot of stuff that i agree with you guys it it could be a better movie but for me it kind of jived um any closing words before we sign off no no watch chasing amy (laughs) next week Um, pretty much covered it we're going to jump from from this, from Twilight to this, to Chasing Amy in true movie-go-round fashion. If you'd like to follow along, of course, that's a Netflix roulette. It's on Netflix. At least it will be when we record. Uh, where can we find everybody online? Uh, David. <laughs> I realized I had me. to introduce somebody. Yeah, yeah. It's just like we can't go Hunger Games style on this. Uh, just follow me on Twitter at DavLuz. That's D-A-V-L-U-Z. And you can find the rest of my stuff there. Very good. What about you, Nicole? I look after our Facebook page at facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. 
Very good. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can find everything we do, social.mgrpodcast.com. There are articles up on mgrpodcast.com. We are releasing about one a week leading up to episode 100, which means there's three, four for you to go read over there at this point. It's now past. We're into the hundreds. Go check those out. It's everything from uh, future classics that we wished we could have talked about but ran out of time to do so to favorite movie dogs and desert island movies check those out mgrpodcast.com we'll see you next week with chasing amy